Pastor Eric is continuing his uh, sermon series in the book of Exodus, so I invite you now to please take your Bible and turn to uh, our scripture lesson this morning, which is taken from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 26. If you don't have a Bible and need one, please grab one of those red pew Bibles in front of you. Once again, Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 26. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, Father God, as we come to your word. I pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under its authority, and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Amen. So one of the interesting things about preaching straight through books of the Bible is that you have these like familiar or exciting texts and then there's occasionally weeks where you're like, okay, there's some interesting stuff in here. And so before we dive into this text, this is is what we're going to do, okay? This text does involve the words, um, you know, that she cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, all right? And discusses circumcision. And for those of you that have the, like, 11-year-old boy that needs to snicker about it and nudge your neighbor, right? You can do that right now, okay? (laughs) All right, we're going to talk about these things. There's some good stuff here and some hard stuff. But I want to acknowledge out front, this is not one of those familiar texts from um, Exodus. This is kind of a transitional set of verses. Um, Over the last few weeks, we see Moses meet with God in the burning bush and get called and commissioned. And starting next week, he's going to confront Pharaoh, and we get the let my people go stuff. And here is a couple of stories in between (laughs) those two familiar parts of it. Um, And they're, in some ways, strange. That said, I think that in many ways this bridge in these stories sounds two themes that are both familiar and important as we move through the book of Exodus. Two themes that always belong together in scripture. Um, Those themes are the seriousness of sin and God's grace that covers our sin. The seriousness of sin and God's grace that covers our sin. 
And so what I want us to do is just reflect in these stories on those themes. So on the one hand, this passage reminds us of the seriousness of sin. So first, to orient us, um, in the first few verses, Moses goes to his father Jethro and asks permission to leave. This is a time when, um, when the patriarch of the house would still kind of have this authority over his whole extended family. So he's polite to that and gets permission. And Jethro says, go, and Moses and his family start riding back to Egypt. And as they ride, I think we're supposed to assume that Moses is feeling all the things you would feel riding across the desert, getting ready to confront one of the most powerful people in the world and demand that he um, let Israel go. He is probably struggling and a little bit scared. And I think that is why what God then does is come to Moses and speak to him a sort of reminder and promise of how things are going to play out. And as he does that, he, he really brings out two realities about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's sin. First, he reminds Moses and us that sin brings hardness. Sin brings hardness. So in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you and the powers to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, and that's actually going to become an important feature of the story in Exodus as it moves forward, and it makes some of us uncomfortable. This is one of the things that some of us have questions about, right? Because it sounds like God is going to make Pharaoh sin. Is that how it sounds? And first of all, let's just peek forward, because this is when I want us to talk about this, as this is going to arise later in the text, too. But the way that Exodus tells the story is kind of complicated. So first of all, it's going to talk about Pharaoh. Sometimes it's going to talk about Pharaoh's hardness just as this thing that exists, that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Uh, It doesn't comment on the cause, just says that that's the case. So like in chapter 7, It's going to say that Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, meaning Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And for each of these, I'm going to put all the places that it occurs in Exodus up on the screen. So sometimes that happens, and sometimes the text explicitly says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So like in chapter 8, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And then there are times when it's the Lord who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So in chapter 9, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So this comes true in those passages. What do we make of that? Well, let me suggest three things about that, about that idea of God hardening Pharaoh and hardening hearts. One And this is important because the other two answers are the ones that are going to kind of maybe soften the blow or that we naturally run to. But one is that the Bible does just insist that God is sovereign over everything, and that includes the choices that we make. Not that he forces us to do things or somehow overrules our will, but that he's in control even of the choices that we make. If you remember, um, a little over a year ago, we were preaching through the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about this specific thing there. And so in Romans 9, he says, For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to mercy, and he, has, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. 
And Paul anticipates the question that we ask, that we've already asked in Romans 9. He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Or who's able to resist his will? And that's the question we have, right? And here's the answer Paul gives there. He says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And now again, in just a minute, we're going to say some other things to help us as we grapple, but it is important for us to recognize that that's the most basic truth that Scripture tells, which is that God is God, and he's way beyond us and beyond our understanding and searching out. And so we should not presume to understand how his will always works. That said... These verses in Exodus um, do, I think, also give us two other things that we need to keep in mind when we think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. One is that God's hardening exists in the context of our sin, which is to say that Exodus does not say that God has to work to make Pharaoh into a cruel tyrant of a king who oppresses Israel. While God hardens his heart in sin— That's not the same thing as saying that Pharaoh is this, like, delicate, pure blossom, and God somehow has to actively work to make him a sinful person. The hardening is not, you know, the origin of that sin, but it's what's keeping Pharaoh from relenting. And the second thing is that within Exodus, God's hardening also seems to run alongside Pharaoh's willingness to harden his own heart. If you look at those verses that we listed in Exodus, one of the things that you notice is that earlier in the story, what you tend to see is just that Pharaoh's heart is hard or that he's hardening his own heart. And then as it progresses is when you really start to see God regularly being the one who it said hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so what seems to be happening is not that Pharaoh is, you know, is somehow this, again, this like sinless guy or quick to relent. Um, But what happens is that Pharaoh is hard but that God does further harden him so that the full power and judgment that is coming on him for his sins reaches its realization. Um, It's that Pharaoh might have, without God hardening him, relented. Not because he sees his sin and, you know, and truly wants to repent, but just because he's like, all right, I can't take this anymore, get out of here. And that God does work in a way to harden Pharaoh in unrepentance so that that doesn't happen. How does that connect to our lives? And I want to say here, this is one of those sermons where we're going to dwell on some hard things, but there's good news at the end. But the simple answer is that this calls us to recognize that as we live in sin, one of the consequences is that we can become hard. And that's true in two senses. One is that sin naturally hardens us, that we become less and less able to see it as we live in it. And that's true on a lot of levels. I think, I mean, that's true on obvious levels first. There's this this true crime podcast I like to listen to, and they regularly interview criminals. And one of the really interesting things is how every one of those criminals can in vivid detail tell the story of the first time they committed the crime, right? The first, like, place that they robbed or the first fire that they lit or whatever. Um, And they can tell this story full of, like, fear and anxiety and guilt and all of this stuff. But the more times that they did it, and the more that they lived in it, the less they were able to feel those things. So much so that some of these guys, you know, can't even remember how many times they did this thing that, that they were guilty of. That's true on that level, but it's not just true of hardened criminals either. 
to the truth of us that all of us grow hard as we live in sin and as we live in a world full of sin we grow hard to the reality that sin is sin so much so that often we can't even see it um i was thinking about a little while back i was sitting at a coffee shop i write sermons at coffee shops and there were these two guys um, at the table next to me loudly talking about um the the me too movement and this one guy kind of angrily says like you know, th- this is all ridiculous, right? You know, like back, you know, when I was young, like it was no big deal to, to grab a woman or to get her liquored up and take advantage of her. Like that's literally what he said. And I'm sitting here and I, I, I did not turn and interrupt their conversation, although I was deeply tempted to. What I wanted to say is like, no, that wasn't all right then. It was just that you were hard to it. In so many ways in our culture, what happens is that sinful things become normal, or in our lives, sinful things become normal, so much so that we don't even feel like they're sin anymore. And that probably makes some of us uncomfortable, because it forces us to wonder about our own hearts. And let me suggest that some of that discomfort is probably good for us. Purity and righteousness of God is a lot purer and more righteous than we often imagine. Um, And it's good for us to recognize that we probably need to be attentive to ways that we fail to recognize sin in our own hearts. So sin naturally hardens us. And also, sometimes God's judgment is manifested in our being hardened in sin. Hardness can be a kind of judgment. One of the great insanities of sin is that often in it we keep coming back to the things that make us miserable. We do the things that make us unhappy, and then because we're unhappy, we just do them again. Again, there are are really evident or extreme examples. If you've ever walked with someone through addiction, right, you see that pattern play out where they have this thing and, um, and they're unhappy because of work or family or whatever, and so they start abusing this thing, and as this thing takes over their lives, it actually starts to destroy their work or their family, and that makes them even more unhappy, and they turn again to this thing, and they get caught in that kind of cycle. But that pattern, that the things that make us unhappy are the things that we turn to in our unhappiness, often works in subtler ways. It's the pattern of the husband who wants his wife to respect him, and so he treats her horribly and makes him respect her even less. Or the wife who wants her husband to care for her and cherish her, and so she belittles and discourages him to try to get him there. Or the parent who tries to teach their children kindness and love by berating them and beating them down. Or the employee who gets a bad performance review and says, oh yeah, well I'm just not going to work at all then. We could go on and on with those examples. So often what happens in sin is that one of the consequences of our sin is that we become hardened in it. In a sense, that is a sign of God's judgment on our sin. Not that he somehow has to supernaturally work to make that happen even, but that he designs the world in such a way that oftentimes sin is one of its own consequences. So sin brings hardness. And that's already then starting to blur into the second reality this text also reminds us of, which is that sin has consequences. It has consequences and brings judgment. So if you look at verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now this is looking forward to the plagues that God's going to bring in Egypt, and especially the final plague. And um, I know that that declaration of the death of the firstborn is a really heavy judgment, and we're going to talk about some of that heaviness when we get to it in Exodus, all right? But here is what is important to notice for this morning, which is that God is stressing that that judgment is a response to Pharaoh and to Egypt's sin. Which is to say, here's what's happened in the book of Exodus, that Pharaoh impress, oppresses Israel and beats them down and makes them slaves. And so much so, if you remember back in chapter 1, that he institutes this campaign of genocide against Israel, right? And kills, kills the baby boys of Israel to try to control their population. And God pictures Israel here as, as his firstborn, as his beloved child. And then what he declares to Pharaoh is that as you have done... So, in a real sense, you are going to have done to you. That Pharaoh has to face the terrible consequences of God's judgment. That theme of judgment, though, in this text doesn't just fall on Pharaoh. What's striking about that theme is that Moses, in this story, also faces judgment from God. If you look at verse 24, it says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Which, if you've been reading through Exodus, you're kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, It seems to come almost out of left field. God calls Moses, but then comes to kill him. And lots of people like to speculate on this part of the story because it's really sparse on details. Like, what does that mean, right? Does it it mean that, that Moses somehow is struck with a disease or is like having... I don't know, like a seizure on the ground, or does it mean like the the angel of the Lord like physically appears with a sword in his hand and is about to kill Moses? And we don't know really what's happening. But somehow we know Moses' wife, Zipporah, does understand that this is going on. And so then we see in verse 25, But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So there's a couple things happening there, and we're going to come to the rest of them in a minute. But what that verse really seeks to explain, in part, is what's going on here. And so let's talk about this. So God makes this covenant with Abraham, which is where Israel comes from. And when he makes this covenant, the kind of first command that he gives Abraham is that he's supposed to— he has the sign that he's supposed to apply to himself and to his sons, and that is the sign of circumcision. Um, It is meant to be a mark of God's promises to his people and to their children. And he gives the sign to Abraham and commands Abraham to give it to Isaac, and that's supposed to be done to all of the male descendants in Israel. Um, Just a note, because that can seem kind of alien to us in the New Covenant age, which is to say the age after Jesus, when we live um, as the church, circumcision is replaced as a sign of the covenant by baptism. So we still have the same thing going on. We still have this mark that's supposed to mark God's promises to his people, um, to us and to our children. But as Paul says in Colossians, he says, In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
So baptism for us is, is what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It works the same way. It's the sign of God's promises and his salvation. Um, and it's changed because before Christ it was this bloody symbol, and now it's the symbol of cleansing and washing. But otherwise, in a real sense, it's the same. Now on one level, um, this story should probably just emphasize us that God takes things like that more seriously than maybe we do. Um, right? Moses' failure is that he hasn't circumcised his son. Um, and I think in our day, we tend to view, you know, those kinds of signs as we're just like, oh, they're just symbols and they're no big deal. But, I mean, Scripture doesn't treat them that way. Um, circumcision and now baptism are symbols in the sense that they're not magic and that they don't save us apart from faith and repentance and a relationship with God. Um, Neither did circumcision, just for the record. In the Old Testament, the prophets make clear that you're supposed to have this, I mean, they called it a circumcision of the heart that was supposed to be joined with this outward sign. Um, but it's not just a symbol, because God's given us this mark of his promises and commanded us to use it. And judging by the fact that Moses, in our story, almost dies because he takes that lightly, um, it's significant. But the root issue in this story is not about circumcision or baptism or whatever. It's about the deeper fact that Moses, who God has called to come and work salvation for his people and stand before Pharaoh and declare God's judgment, Moses is living in active and unrepentant disobedience to God in this way. That's the point of this story. That Moses isn't just, it's not just that God is going to judge Pharaoh and those Egyptians, right? It's not just that they're bad people and we're fine, but that Moses himself, right, also a sinner, is standing before the judgment of God. And there are real consequences for his disobedience, too. So what do we do with that fact, that sin has consequences? Mostly, I think it should just remind us that sin is something that we need to take seriously. When we see it in our lives. Sin does have consequences. It has consequences within life. Often profound consequences. One of the lies that we often tell ourselves. Is that the choices that we make. They're not big deals. I think it often shows up in the way we frame sin as mistakes. Right? We're like oops. I, I messed up. And we do that because we have this idea that a mistake's not a big deal. You know everybody makes mistakes. And so. We shouldn't really worry about them. The reality of being a human being in the image of God, with all the significance and responsibility that comes from that, is that we have enormous power in our choices for good and for destruction. It is completely in my power to destroy my world. It's worth reflecting on that. It's not even that hard. Um, it would be completely within my power to wreck my marriage and to wreck my kids and to wound the people around me. Um, all it would take, right? In a few hours, I could do that if I set out to do it. Like, that is completely within each of our power to cause that kind of destruction. And that's not just true of big sins either. We might focus on those, like, in a couple of hours sins when we think about it. But again, our little sins have enormous potential for destruction too. One of the hardest things for my heart has been, um, I sit sometimes in counseling meetings and have over the years with people who are deeply wounded um, and wrestle with their view of themselves, who, um, who are in the grips of self-hatred, 
um, or eating disorders or depression, things like that. I've sat with some of those people, and I've heard them tell me the stories that, you know, that kind of brought them to that place, the stories of all these little things, these little words and comments that together wounded them, and these people that just never showed up for them and never spent time with them, and the phone that never rings and the friends that avoid them. I've sat with people and heard those stories and known in my heart that I have done all of those things. That I, in my life, right, have have done those things that in aggregate has destroyed this person. I have been petty or overcritical or not bothered to call somebody when I knew they needed help and said things that are hurtful. And those are the things taken together that have destroyed this beautiful person that God created. Sin has consequences in our world. And according to scripture, it has eternal consequences. Because sin is evil and destroys what is good, God opposes it absolutely. When we read this story and God is, it says God comes to kill Moses, we feel like that's an overreaction, right? We feel like, whoa, hold on a minute. That's the reality of all of our situations, that sin brings death and destruction and eternal condemnation for the evils that we do. So all of that is heavy. It's heavy for two reasons. One is because we need to feel the weight of that a little bit. One of the key ways in our lives that we have to fight against sin is to stop believing that it's not a big deal. To stop believing the lie that nobody really gets hurt and it's not really significant. But at the same time, the other reason we need to feel that weight is because it helps us hear the good news that we are not doomed to sin's destruction. God's grace towards sin also shows in this story. God's grace. So if you turn back to that story of Moses and Zipporah, we talked about Moses' sin there, right? But there's more going on than just that. So if you start back in verse 25, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord left him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So um, Zipporah circumcises her son. I'm not going to explain the details of that in case there are kids here. And touches Moses' feet with the bloody thing and declares, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And that is not the sort of thing that we encounter in our daily lives. Um, So we might wonder, what's going on here? Well, first, just notice a couple things about the story. Um, I think the way that a lot of people kind— I mean, most people don't tell this story, right? There's not like Sunday school felt cutouts. But when I've heard this story told, <laughs> when I've heard this story told, though, um, usually it's like, well, Moses was being disobedient, but then he, he stopped, and now he's obedient, and so God left him alone. But the problem with that way of telling the story, right, even though that's how we might naturally tell it, is that Moses doesn't do anything in the story. Right? I mean, the way it's told, you, I think you almost picture him as like he's laying on the ground comatose or in bed or something. And Zipporah is the one who somehow understands what's going on and circumcises their son and touches the blood to him. So it's not Moses' obedience that's somehow fixing his disobedience. And the bloodiness of this thing is also really emphasized. Um, three different times in the text, right? It uses language talking about how there's this blood that she's using, and Zipporah somehow takes the blood and touches it to Moses. For that to make sense, we need to back up and talk a little bit about what circumcision meant in the Old Testament. 
So we said that God gives this sign to Abraham, the sign of his promise. But before he does that, um, there's this ceremony that happens when he makes his covenant. A covenant, remember, is a set of promises that create a relationship. And so if you look in Genesis 15, God makes these promises to, to Abraham, and then he says this. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Moses brought God all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. Now that sounds really strange, right? <laughs> you know, but that in Abraham's world is actually super familiar because that was a normal thing you would do when you made a covenant with like a king. What would happen is like a king would have some, you know, subject that was going to swear allegiance come to him. And what he'd do is he'd chop these animals in half. And then he would say, okay, now you walk between the halves of these animals as you promised to follow me. And basically the meaning of it was to say like, you know, if you break these promises, it's going to happen to you. Does that make sense? That, that was a normal thing in Abraham's day. Except what's really interesting about Genesis 15 is that while the hacking apart the animals and laying them like that um, is normal, what happens next isn't. So if you, keep re- if you kept reading in Genesis 15, it says that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So God does not have Moses walk between the pieces of the animals. Instead, somehow, this thing that seems to symbolize God himself, right? That seems to symbolize God's presence passes between it. He's somehow showing himself as the one who takes the consequences for Moses, or for Abraham's disobedience. And that actually, that ceremony seems to be what lies behind circumcision then when, when Abraham's given it right after that, right? That Again, when you think about what's happening with the act of it, it seems to be evoking that image of, you know, the cutting of the animals and of God passing between them. So when Zipporah circumcises her son, she's not just doing this random act, but she's acting out in blood this promise that God made in blood to somehow stand in the place of Abraham and his descendants for their sin. The same action also kind of calls to mind something that's going to happen a little later in Exodus. We're not going to go into all the details of it here, but when Israel is about to be brought out and God's final judgment is falling on Egypt, what he tells them to do is to take a lamb and sacrifice it and paint the blood, cover their door um, with the blood. That, that Somehow that blood is a covering for their sin as God's judgment falls. It's in the Passover. And all of that together seems to suggest that this strange little interaction with Zipporah, you know, and the blood and covering, touching it to Moses, that's seeking to to speak to this fundamental theme that runs through Scripture, which is that although sin brings judgment, the solution to that judgment is not to somehow never sin or be perfect, but rather in a covering of blood. Again, this story doesn't go into all the details of that. That's because, um, as we've said in other sermons, the Old Testament is all about giving us this, this language of images, this set of images that happen over and over, and over time they grow and expand until they reach their fulfillment. And this is a set of images that runs through the whole Old Testament, this, this covering of blood. It runs through the sacrificial system and the language of the prophets, and ultimately it leads to Jesus. The New Testament picks up this same language to describe what Jesus does on the cross. So like in the letter to the Ephesians, it says, In Jesus we have redemption, salvation, through his blood, for the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
or in Romans, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Or one more from the book of Hebrews, which goes to great pains to link Jesus' death with these bloody sacrifices. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Some of us might feel a little uncomfortable with the violence of that imagery. In our modern age, it is appealing to some of us to have this kind of bloodless Jesus that sees his death as just kind of this unfortunate martyrdom that we wish hadn't happened. But the Bible has none of that. It insists that the bloody cross of Jesus is actually the way that God covers our sins. And what part of me wonders when I see that discomfort in our world what did we expect? That violence, right? That visceral reality of a bloody sacrifice is meant to speak to the violence of our sin. A respectable savior that dies a respectable death, um, that tends to give us a respectable view of, of what it means when we sin, but, and we treat it as no big deal. But what the cross reminds us of is the brutality that exists in our hearts and in our sin. That it tears Jesus apart to suffer the consequences of the destruction that we create. But at the same time, he has suffered it. He has covered our sins. That's the, the point of what happens with Moses. That Zipporah does this thing and then God chooses to accept that covering and to spare Moses. The same is true for us. That our sin is far worse than we imagine, and we're more hardened in it, and it has more consequences than we're willing to admit. But we recognize that because it is followed by the truth that we don't bear those consequences anymore. That God has worked in us to soften our hard hearts, and that in Jesus we are fully forgiven and covered for all of the things that we have done. And it is just so so important and, and, and so familiar to some of us, but somehow so missed that the simple reality is, it's just, look, like, you have done bad things in your life. You've done a lot more bad things, and they're a lot worse than you probably realize. But Jesus has covered that fully for you. He's paid the whole price of that for you. There's nothing left that you need to do to make it up to him. There's nothing left that you need to do to somehow fix things. There's nothing that you have to pay. You are covered by his blood. And there is no judgment left for you. It speaks to us of God's covering of sin. And the story also hints that because of that, we have a new relationship with God. There's another image that's evoked here in Exodus. So Zipporah takes this knife, um, but then she says to Moses, she says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then it repeats it in the next verse. A bridegroom of blood. So what does that mean? Well, in this story, it seems to be a way for Zipporah to say something like, By this act, I am more deeply joined to you. It's almost as if I'm marrying you again. We were married before by our promises, but now we're married in blood. You're a groom of blood to me. 
And this is just the first hint of an image that also is developed in the Old Testament. And again, remember, oftentimes what we're getting in these stories is little pictures and words that over time develop more meaning. But, um, but God's forgiveness and covering of sin, um, as, as the story progresses, is more and more pictured as a new relationship. And oftentimes as a marriage. You find it in the Old Testament, for instance, in Isaiah, where he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, your Savior, the God of the whole earth, he's called. So the God who's your Savior, who covers and pays for your sins, somehow is like your husband, the prophet tells Israel. And the New Testament picks up this language and applies it to what Jesus has done for us as his people. So, for instance, in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without splot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus and his people, us, right? When it's her in that passage, it's talking about us. Jesus and us. He pays his blood for us, and then he joins us to, uh, to him in, in this relationship. The only picture, one of the best pictures in the Bible for is marriage. In the book of Revelation, there's one more image of that. As Jesus returns, the whole earth is pictured as celebrating this wedding feast with the church as Jesus' bride. And here's the description of that. It's let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Now again, I'm not saying that all of that stuff is, is here in, you know, in this story with Moses in the sense that, you know, that, that Zipporah or Moses would have understood all of that. But this is the first time that those images are used and joined of God's forgiving and covering of sin and of this love that's almost like a marriage. And I think we're supposed to appreciate, as we recognize the way that plays out over the course of Scripture, that it's not just even that we are forgiven. That that's a glorious truth. But it's that God has joined himself to you with the kind of commitment and the kind of faithfulness and the kind of deep, flourishing relationship that it would take something like the best sort of marriage to begin to compare to it. He's not only paid for your sins, but he's created this relationship of love within which we live. One of the best pictures we have of that reality, one that I'm glad we get to celebrate this morning, is the table. It's the Lord's Supper that we're about to come to together. The Lord's Supper, sort of like circumcision and baptism as we discussed, is another one of those promise-giving signs of God. It's this physical representation and embodiment Of what God has done for us. And so when we come to this table, it speaks to us of this covering of blood by Jesus that we talked about. When we celebrate it and we use Jesus' words and we say that this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, that's what we're talking about. This beautiful promise that Jesus says that this, this thing that you're taking and drinking is meant to speak to you of this sure and certain reality that I have paid and covered your sins. That that's there, but that the even deeper truth, although it's easy for us to miss, is that the table that we're invited to in the Lord's Supper is a table. That it's a place of fellowship with God. 
those disciples sit down with Jesus at that first celebration of it, and they're with him, and they're breaking bread with him, and they're in this kind of intimacy and closeness with him. And then by the Holy Spirit, as we come to the table, it's that same table. And he sits down with us and declares to us that we are here at his table as part of his family. It's no accident that that table then also looks forward to that wedding supper we talked about at the end of things. That it is a place of fellowship with God where Jesus sits down with us to celebrate both what he has done in covering our sins and drawing us near and in celebrating the hope of what he's ultimately doing and restoring us. So as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, as we look forward at this week, rejoice in this fact that sin runs much deeper in you than you know, (laughs) but that God has covered it anyway and invited you into relationship with him. He paid the price for us to come and be united with him and invites us to sit and eat and join with him. Would you pray with me now as we prepare ourselves for the table? God and Father, I stand here only on the basis of that. Each of us stands only on the basis of that. The gracious love you've shown us in Christ. Pray that we might trust in that and hope in that. Turn from our vain works and turn from our sinful idols. And rejoice that you have forgiven us and welcome us into relationship with your Son. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.